0: Another day Another dollar Makes you Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate, it is almost always during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Wednesday, June the 10th, 2009. As I make my way to my office in the personal mobile studio, my 2006.5 Jenna Diesel TDI. And for those of you who have ever wondered what it actually looks like when a guy's cruising down the highway, Doing a podcast, you're going to get the opportunity, I hope, today to see that. Uh, episode 214, this is 217, but episode 214, or this is 216, whatever episode it is. But it was 214, definitely. Uh, my So this would be 216 today. 214, my son, rode shotgun in the car, fired up the video camera, held it on the dash, and videoed me while I did uh, about a 30-minute show. And uh, last night I got that video edited. Put the cool uh, survival podcast theme music, uh, not the one you hear on the podcast, but the video theme music, the flash animation intro and exit, and then I decided to go upload it to Google Video. Guess what? Google Video no longer accepts uploads. Dang it. Video's 101 megabytes in uh, about, I don't know, 27, 28 minutes long. Dang it. Uh, most of the other video sharing sites won't accept it, either because of file size or duration. Finally found one, and it's called something like Vario or Vireo or something like that. Don't try to look it up. I'll put a link in today's show. I'll go back and put a link in show 214 as well, and uh, you should be able to watch it. It was still processing when I left the house. Activation didn't work last night, but that video will be up today. I think it'll be cool for you guys to get to see that. Let's continue on with some house cleaning before we get into today's show topic. Well, I want to let everybody know, not this Coming Sunday, but next Sunday I'll be appearing on the Brew Crazy Home Brew Podcast to talk about how home brewing and survivalism have a lot in common. I know there's a lot of folks out there that are uh, big into home brewing, and there's a lot of people out there that want to learn more. If you check out brewcrazy.com, you will find out an awful lot about home brewing, and you'll meet Johnny Max and his crew, and they are some really good guys. And please make sure you check them out. Please listen in when I'm on their show next Sunday. And as I move into some interview formats in the future, and Johnny's been nice to me, man. He's helped me uh, figure out how to get that set up. So now I just got to do it. Um, I'm actually going to have Johnny on this show. So this is going to be kind of like, you know, I'll do your show, you do my type of thing. The next thing I wanted to do, though, is remind you to check out our sponsors. Tactical Response Gear is our sponsor of the day. You'll find their banner and the banners of our other sponsors on the website in the right-hand column of the site. Again, those guys help make the show possible. You, the listener, also help make the show possible by sponsoring us as part of our member support brigade. If you do that, you uh, not only help support the show, but you get exclusive content available only to members. And more content will be uh, available to you this week, including uh, some pretty cool discounts and free stuff okay not there yet we'll be there by the end of this week Um, last thing I wanted to let you uh, or actually remind you I mentioned a guy yesterday James Talmadge Stevens one of the true icons in the original kind of early 70's survivalist movement he was uh, on on the talking circuit throughout the Y2K scare and he was the one out of everybody that was saying hey keep yourself calm relax This isn't what you think it is. You need to be prepared, but not for Y2K. You just need to be prepared. Here's how to do it. Uh, Wrote the uh, best-selling survival-themed book of all time. Sold over three-quarters of a million copies. Been out of print a long time. Uh, Also wrote Family Preparedness Guide and some other stuff. Check out his blog. I'm going to go ahead and give him a link again today. So that knocks out the house cleaning. Four minutes flat. Let's get on with uh, the topic of today's show, and that is alternative investments for the survivalist. We're going to talk about investing today. Um We are going to talk about conventional, and we are going to talk about what I call common alternatives today. But it's only to understand the bigger picture and how a survivalist can create what I would call an investment portfolio that has a lot more advantages than typical investing. So if you're not a big investing person, hang with me today. This one's going to be cool. It's going to be different, and I I don't know that it's going to definitely give you okay. Now what I'm going to do is step one, two, three, four, five, that type of thing. Because this is highly personal. But what I hope does, by the end of today's show, is that I have you thinking outside of the box in what actually an investment is, why you make an investment in the first place, what the objectives of an investment are, how much risk there is with most investments, why you're willing to take that risk, and how even when everything goes right with your investments, it may not really do what you wanted in the first place. There may have been a better better way to leverage your assets. Okay, so let's start out with the first question. Why in the hell do people, well not really why do they invest? But what are the what are the four objectives of investing? Whenever you put money into anything, there's only one of four things that people tie their money into today in an investment vehicle, a stock, a bond, a mutual fund, alternatives like gold, investing in a business. It doesn't matter what it is. There's only four strategic reasons that investment advisors will, you know, guide your your investing for you today. And they are, simply put, growth. Those are people that are looking to grow the investment. And that's really a long-term view of the investment, a growth uh, investment. The other one is income. An income investment means I'm going to put my money in here, but in a very short period of time, I want to start pulling some out. And I want the investment to have enough of an ROI that I can continue to take an income as though it were a salary without depleting the underlying asset. In other words, I want sufficient growth to create income. That's a second class. The third class is asset protection. This would also be considered security. And what you mean by that is a lot of people would consider gold an asset protection investment. It's not so much I'm looking for the upside, but I know that my downside is limited. Or people may put um, an investment into an annuity form. and An annuity, doesn't matter who comes after you for money. No one can take your money out of an annuity. Not a lawsuit, not the government. No one. And now investment advisors will abuse that, and they'll have you put all your money into an annuity instead of a portion of it, but used properly. That's one example of asset protection. And it's just one. There's a lot of different ways to structure things from your investment standpoint to protect the underlying asset and keep it from either being devalued or taken away or lost. All right? So protection or security. The last one is tax avoidance. Uh The most familiar thing that everybody knows about, I guess, today is IRAs and 401Ks. They're a form of tax avoidance. Now, inside that investment, uh, you might have, you know, a growth, and income, whatever type of fund. But, you know, you take your Roth IRA, you pay your taxes today, but you avoid the long-term tax consequences on the growth of the income. You take a conventional IRA or 401K, you put your money in today, and you avoid paying taxes until the time of withdrawal. Either way, you're avoiding taxation, okay? So those are your four types of investments. And and there really isn't anything else. And anything else you'll come up with bend and twist, I'll either be able to go growth, income, growth and income, asset protection, security, tax avoidance. I'll be able to put that on anything that you do, including starting, running, and founding your own business. You're looking for income, you're looking for growth. Right, because you want the business to grow to a point where possibly at one day you can exit it and extract equity out of it, or it provides long. No matter, and you're going to take and you're going to write off expenses that you would pay for anyway. Okay, instead of you know earn, pay tax, spend, you're going to flip that around and you're going to you're going to earn, spend, and then pay tax. That's, that's one way of tax avoidance uh, with a business structure. You buy yourself a car, provide it to yourself as part of your compensation package, and either depreciate the asset or take the expense off on a lease, right? So that's tax avoidance, it's growth, and it's income. Alright, and I think into a, another degree it's also asset protection. That's what makes it a good investment. So no matter what you come up with, it's gonna be one or all or Several of those. Now, why the hell do we do this in the first place? None of it is without risk. None of it without is without consequence. Even something like an annuity with a guaranteed rate of return. We'd see a guaranteed rate of return on an annuity of six percent. You take fifty thousand dollars, you put it away, they give it back to you in twenty years, and you make your interest on it, and it pays out. No way you can lose. Well, what's the what's the risk there? It's not so much the risk. It's what's the consequence. You can't touch that money for 20 years so you're either risking your money or tying your money up in every single investment vehicle in a conventional investment portfolio there is no such thing as an investment that doesn't either cost you security or opportunity to use the investment elsewhere so you got to ask yourself why do we take the risk why do we tie up our money why do we go through this well we do it for a variety of reasons, but chief among them is the fact that we live in a fractional reserve system with fake money, and therefore we have to continue to deal with something called inflation. And that means that if inflation's running at four or five percent, which they say it isn't, but we all look around us and go at the actual cost of everything that we need to survive, it is. And that means that if I earn a five percent return on my investment, inflation was let's be kind and at 3%, I've effectively only earned a 2% return, okay? So I need to invest aggressively enough to overcome inflation and still meet my goals. So inflation is the number one reason that people invest, because the other alternative to investment is simply savings. Saving your money in cash, if it was a real asset, would be very secure and wouldn't have any consequences, Yeah, the cash, you can spend it anywhere you want, whenever you want. You can't lose it because you have it. It's in one place. Put it in bills and put it in a suitcase under your bed. Lock it up in a safe. Put it in a safety deposit box somewhere where the bank can't lose it on you. And it's just very, very secure physically. You can't lose it. Well, the problem is you are losing it. If inflation is 3%, and you put $100,000 into a safety deposit box and leave it there, effectively, it's just like at the end of your first year, somebody walks in with their own key, opens your box, takes $3,000 out, and locks your box back up. Okay. Next year, they walk in and take, oh, about $2,900, lock your box back up. And they just keep doing it. Now, because they're only taking 3% each time, you'll never get to zero, But you'll get to an amount of money that won't really buy you anything. Certainly not what $100,000 would have bought you. That's how inflation works. So that's what drives us to invest. We also invest to provide for our needs. And this is there's only really three reasons I think that people invest. This is another one. Because growth, income, asset protection, it's really all about making sure that I can eat every day, that I'm, you know, I can I can have clean water, I can have health care, I can pay my bills, I can have transportation, right? I want to make sure that all the things that I need to survive are available to me, and I need money to make that happen, at least in today's, you know, today's type of economy that we live in. It's a cash based economy. So I need to have certain amounts of money in order to provide for myself. And the only other one that really exists, and this is simplifying things, and that makes it easy to understand, and it makes it easy to think about, and it doesn't make it confusing like your investment advisor. So it's really confusing, just trust me. Okay? Only one, only other one left is to leave something behind. The only reasons we invest to combat inflation, to provide for our needs, tomorrow, today, doesn't matter. we have, it's, it's part about providing for our needs. We didn't need anything. Somebody came and just gave you, said, here's a car that never runs out of gas. Here's a house, exactly like you like it. Anything you ever want changed in it will be taken care of for you. Right? Here you go. Here's a, an unending pantry of food. There's a doctor over there you can go see anytime you like. Everything is provided for you. Do whatever you want. Would you invest? The only reason you would invest that's left is because you would want to maybe be able to hand down what you had to your heirs, to your sons, your daughters, grandsons, granddaughters, what have you, to leave a legacy. No other reasons. So that makes investing take on a new light. It makes you look at it and go... How well do these smart investments really fill these goals and these needs when all these clowns are on TV all the time telling us, Oh, never stop contributing to your 401k. Max it out. Make sure you keep... Oh, the stock market depressed right now. Everything's on sale. Don't worry about the $200,000 you already lost. That's all right. It'll come back. Keep investing now. How well... Do all these conventional investments fill the needs of growth, income, asset protection, tax avoidance, combating inflation, providing for your needs, and leaving something behind? Well, let's look at them. Stocks and bonds are the, the big ones, and funds that are based on stocks and bonds. Well. If they go up, they do fairly well. Of course, you either have to put them in some sort of deferral situation where you can't get your hands on your money and you have that consequence, right? Or if you keep them out in the open where you can access your money, you have to pay taxes. Even when you buy a stock, let's say you buy a stock and it's traded at $50, and that stock goes up to $100. Well, you don't pay any tax on it. Now, if they pay a dividend to you as a shareholder, let's say uh, you had a stock worth $50, uh, but you had 50 shares of it, and they paid out a dividend, all the dividends for this year ended up to a dollar. So for your 50 shares, you got $50 in dividends. You're going to pay taxes on that, but on the gain, the capital gain of 50 to to $100 of appreciation, you don't pay any taxes unless you want your money. If you want your money, you want to do something else with it, then you have to initiate a transaction and sell the stock. Then you pay tax on the gain. So it doesn't really avoid tax. There's really no way with stocks and bonds to both avoid taxes completely and provide for your needs today. You have to do one or the other. The other thing that you have to look at is asset protection or your security. There's a heavy risk involved with all of these things. I don't care how many prospectuses you read. I don't care. History has proven to be a strong indicator of future results. They also say there's no guarantee, and there's no guarantee... Because that mutual fund that's returned 13% over 10 years for the last 30 years could be absolutely positively worthless tomorrow or worth only 50% of what it is tomorrow. And for many people, that's already happened. So there is the risk. So that mitigates the asset protection. Now, let's look at the, uh, the last one that people would generally invest in, currency. Currency. That's considered an investment today, going over and buying somebody else's currency. So Australia, put your just put your money in an Australian bank, hold Australian dollars. So you take that same $50,000 that you would invest in the stock market, you go open up an Australian bank account, and you hold Australian dollars. And then that way, if the U.S. dollar falls, you have an offset. Well, one, you have to extract the money out of the Australian bank. In order to get your money, two, you're still going to pay taxes on it. Three, there's no guarantee the Australian economy won't tank, or the European economy won't tank, or the British economy won't tank, or the China. You know, wherever you can put your money, you still have the risk. And you're still not acceptably guaranteeing yourself a hedge against inflation. As long as inflation is, you know, like you said, they like say 1.9, 2.9%, something like that. Bullshit. Right? We all know if you look at the actual cost of living, it's much higher than that, and that's what's eroding the cash. So all of those investments have a place. I own stocks. I actually have some money in some mutual funds again. Bottom wall of the market was down at like 6000 But a lot of my money sitting in cash because I'm waiting to spend it somewhere else. Okay, But what I'm doing with most of my money is saving it and allocating it for true alternative investing. Before we talk about true alternative investing, survivalist investing, let's talk about common alternative investments for a minute. Um, Commodities is a common alternative investment. And what I mean by commodities is you buy contracts on oil, you buy contracts on gasoline, you buy contracts on orange juice, soybeans, coffee, coffee. Anything like that you can buy contracts against. Now, the problem is you can make a lot of money, and you can lose a lot of money with when you're buying contracts on commodities. You can buy contracts on wheat, and if we have way too much rain or way too little rain, and there's a shortage of wheat, shorter than the plant, and again, you got to understand this, there's a shortage doesn't guarantee you a return on your commodity investment. If we expect a 2% shortage of grain worldwide, and you buy a wheat contract, and it hits at exactly 2%, odds are you won't make much money unless some other thing influences the price of wheat because it was planned for, so it was priced into the option. All right. If all of a sudden we get a massive drought and we have a shortfall of 5%, you can make a lot of money. But if everything works out, we get perfect weather, the forecasters were wrong, and we have a surplus of wheat, you lose your ass. So it's just like playing the stock market. In some ways, it's more dangerous. There's people who make a ton of money at it, but you really got to know what you're doing. And it ties your money up. The money's locked in. And you have to pay taxes on it. Um, what about the uh, the gold standard, or the silver standard, or the platinum standard? Buying metals with an underlying historical value. I think this is a great investment, but it is what I would call a common alternative or a conventional alternative. Anybody that looks at it goes, well, that's an investment. It might not be, you know, Dave Ramsey said, gold is a terrible investment. Yeah, Dave, I wish I had all my money in gold uh, back in 1995 and I just left it there. Because right now, uh, I would have already dumped it and I would have made a ton of money on it. So... There you go for your turn. Did a lot better the stock market from nineteen ninety five to two thousand and nine too, my friend. right? But I don't see gold as that type of an investment. I see it as a hedge. It is a security mechanism. That's how I see you. Same with silver. That's why I say 10 to 15% of your savings in retirement, whatever that is combined, you put 10 to 15% in gold and silver. Or in gold. Or in silver. Or in gold and silver and platinum. However you want to allocate it. But put some piece. That's not 10% of your income, right? It's 10% of the money you're saving. And it gives you a nice hedge. But here's the thing. When you sell the gold and take a profit on it, you know, if you if you make twenty thousand dollars, you're not just gonna go get a suitcase full of bills that nobody's gonna talk about. There's gonna be a record record of the transaction. You're gonna pay taxes on it. So it doesn't really work for tax avoidance, because whenever it's utilized, you pay tax enough. If you use it for barter, night. But if you get caught, it's tax of it's tax avoidance, right? You get prosecuted for it. So there's only so much gold can do for us. It's a tool, like all these other investments. And then the last alternative investment that people really look at is real property. But generally when they look at real property or real estate as an investment, they don't look at it the way that I look at it or probably the way that you look at it. They look at it as, well, I'm going to go out and buy five rental houses. Now, even though they're appreciating in value, while I'm holding them, I'm going to depreciate them. I'm going to use them for tax avoidance. I'm also going to use them for income because I'm going to rent them out for more than my underlying payment so there's some immediate cash flow income against it. Of course, the no money down shit is a lie that Carlton Sheets has been selling you for 25 years. You're going to have to tie up cash into each one of these, and you're going to have to have reserve cash to cover things like the toilet broke because now you're a landlord, right? But there is that... That income. You're also going to have growth out of your investment, hopefully, because the underlying value of the home should go up over time. Because real property, traditionally, gives you a good return of investment. Now, right now, real estate's in the shitter. That doesn't mean that it's not a good time. To, in fact, it probably means it is a good time to buy. I think you have lots of time to make your decision right now. Um, it took a long time for the real estate market to recover from 1991 almost to 1996-97, where we really didn't see a return of, of former prices in that little mini-depression during the beginning of, of the Clinton years, which everybody forgets about and thinks it was so great for the economy. So, I think you got some time to work with here. But that typical investment is seen as we're going to do all these things, and then at the end, I will sell it make a profit on it, and then I can, if I'm a smart real estate investor, I can buy another piece of property and not pay taxes on the gains because I'll roll it over into the next property. I can do that for years and years and years, property after property. So that's how people usually see real estate. Or I'm young, I need a great big house, I have kids, I buy a great big house, we live in it for years and years, we get older, we need a smaller house, we sell it, we pull equity, we buy the smaller house, put the money in the bank, make it part of our assets at return. Retirement. So those are the two ways people look at real estate. I look at it a little bit differently, and I think if you've been listening to the show, you might know where I'm going with that. But those are your common alternatives. Now let's look at investments for the survivalist's portfolio. And some things people would still consider an investment, and some things if people would go, that's not it. I don't understand how that's an investment. But I bet you will, because you're the kind of person that thinks about self-sufficiency. First one, we'll stay on real estate for a second. It's buying land that is taxed very, very low. Rural land, unimproved land, whatever you can find that is so inexpensive to pay the property taxes on that if you worked part-time for 7-Eleven for two weeks a year, you could pay your property taxes. Okay? $7 an hour, 20 hours a week for two weeks, 280 bucks almost covers my taxes up in Hot Springs. Almost, not quite. So maybe I have to work part-time at Seven Eleven for three weeks. That's not where I'm going to get my $316, folks, but you get my point. It's almost inconceivable that a grown human adult could not come up with $350 or so a year to pay taxes on his property, which, by the way, if you have any income, you're going to get to deduct from the income tax you're going to pay anyway. So it's money you're going to If you have any income, you're going to pay it anyway. So it really isn't that critical, especially when you're talking those low dollars. Now, high-tax land doesn't work. Again, I, I use these numbers because they're real. They're my own numbers. If I paid off my house here in Arlington just to continue to pay all the tax people that you know stick their hand in the cookie jar and pull some money out of my pocket every year, the hospital, the education system, the city, everything, I'd still have to come up with about $300 a month just to pay my taxes on a third of an acre. So, to me, having two or three acres of rural land that can be improved and utilized is a real long-term investment because once you pay it off, it doesn't cost you much to keep it. And how does this land work for tax avoidance? Now, it, in itself, it generates a tax consequence. If you mortgage it, while you're paying the mortgage, which I think you should do it as short and fast and aggressively as possible... But while you're paying it, any interest also gets deducted from your income tax. So it helps you reduce the taxes that go to the federal government because instead of that money going to the federal government, it's going to a bank, yes, but it's being leveraged to give you an asset. Hopefully you can see the difference. And then once that land is paid for, the tax consequence is so small that now it sits there. Now, how does it provide for our objectives? Growth. Land goes up in value, as well as anything else in this country. If land is declining in value, there's probably not a good place to have your money other than a hedge fund. If you want to be a vampire, go ahead. Income. It's up to you how much income you can produce from your land. Uh, but land, you can definitely use to produce income. Asset protection. Very hard to take property away from people in the United States on anything other than eminent domain. You'll find yourself a rural piece of land that's away from major road easements, and you probably don't have to worry about it. Tax avoidance. Okay, there's a tax consequence, but if you're smart about the way you use your piece of rural property, you can avoid a hell of a lot of taxation with it, including sin taxes, sales taxes, okay, Electrical Utility taxes, the big giant increase in that that we're going to see with cap and trade. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So that's number one that I see as part of your investment portfolio. That's why I'm so big on consider getting yourself a bug out location, a nice piece of rural land, a couple acres. Something that has a potential for long-term improvements that you're going to be able to get water and food on, right? You're going to be able to build a structure on. And, it, and as far away as you're comfortable with, and no further than what you're comfortable with from regular society. You know make it what you want it to be. Remember, this is about a time to get tough for even if they don't. Number two, food production. I'm not talking about putting that little garden plot in and planting your tomato plants every year. a step in the right direction. I'm talking about once you have that piece of land, or even if you're going to make a go of it in the city just accept that high tax bill, fine. You make your own decisions here. You make, you know, with any investment, and that's what this is. But terraforming, basically, that piece of property into a way that allows you to make it productive with food long-term, even with small amounts of input. So what I'm talking about is permaculture techniques. That's a huge investment. And I want you to think about this. If you can make that land produce for you 50% of your food, from all the different things I'm going to talk about combined, just 50% of your food, And then figure out what you spend a week or every other week or every month at the grocery store. Factor it out to a year. Figure out what it is for a year. Divide that number in half and say, okay, that money is no longer being spent. It's the same as income, and it's also asset protection. Because if I'm not spending the money, assuming I still have the income, I can save it. All right? And if you do this right, and you make a system that produces food this way for yourself, then what you're able to do is do that year after year after year after year. And you do have to put time, money, and effort into it to get the stuff rolling, but once it rolls, it's very little money, often none, and very little time. Now, the other side of this is often what it'll be is if you're producing 50% of your food, odds are you're producing more than 50%. It's just you only want to eat so many apples, so many pears, so many heads of broccoli, so many bowls of lettuce, what have you. You'll have a surplus even if you're still going to the grocery store, for the things that you don't, you know, really, uh, you're not able to grow. So you take that surplus and you either yourself sell at a farmer's market if it's large enough, or you find a local farmer's market and you find a vendor that's there every weekend and say, hey, would you take on some of my production, stuff that you don't have, that you don't have available. Most of the time you'll be able to do that. One way or another, if you have surplus food, you can sell it. Now that food production is producing asset protection, it's producing income, and it's producing growth and value because it's increasing the underlying value of your land. Trust me, a beautifully landscaped permaculture system piece of land is worth a hell of a lot more than a sterile lot with a great big green lawn. Guarantee you, every time, it's going to sell for more. And it might not appeal to everybody, but the type of people that it appeals to will pay more for it. And it's in short supply right now. So it meets all of our investment objectives and it provides for us. Alright? Because remember, that's what we want. We want it to provide for us. Uh, the next one's alternative energy. Now there's some great tax incentives right now for alternative energy. So if you went and sucked twenty thousand dollars into a solar system, um, you can get up. I think it's like six thousand of that twenty thousand back. Now that's not free money from the government. You've paid that six thousand in taxes somewhere. I don't care what your tax bracket is. I don't care what your income level is. One way or another, you you get sucked out at least six thousand dollars a year in taxes, sales, gas, what well, you name it. So it's a tax avoidance in the form of getting your your money, own money back. Now, it will provide you energy. It increases the underlying asset value of the property. All right. But the big thing is it creates independence. And here's the big one. This is the one people don't understand with how solar or wind or any alternative, because it doesn't have to be solar, hydro, I don't care what it is, anything you do to produce your own energy, in the form of electricity, heat, it doesn't matter what form it's in. You're not purchasing that portion of it anymore. Well, a big co- big portion of your cost of purchase of energy is tax. huge portion of the cost of your energy is tax. There's a tax you see when you take your electric bill and look at it. You'll see all kinds of taxes and fees on there. That all goes to the government to make them more powerful. Right? To make you more dependent. And then you see a base bill, a charge per kilowatt hour. Well, your electric company is not a nonprofit; They're paying the government too and they're passing the charge on to you. So a huge portion of your electric bill, your heating bill, your water bill. And every time you stick that pump into the side of your car and hold it, the lever back until the numbers stop running, every time you do any of those things, you're paying taxes. Lots of them. And you're spending money. It's eroding you. And the inflation is taking effect because the cost of it steadily increases. Look at the cost of gas today versus the outrageously high price of gas in 1972. Look it up. You'll laugh. And people thought we were very upset in 1972 over the price of gas. So again, we're meeting all of our objectives. The cost initially may be high, but... We're providing for ourselves long term. Another thing I see as an investment is productive livestock, from large to small. Some people have enough room to keep a few head of cattle, or hogs, chickens, goats, ducks, geese, turkeys, whatever. It's a perfect investment. Provides you food every day. You have to put very little input in. If you set your land up right, you can provide a lot of the food for your livestock from the land. Now, you, you have to supplement feed any life. Even chickens, you got to supplement their feed. But it's a very low cost of supplementing their feed, especially if you have four or five acres. You know, go out and harvest acorns every year. Chickens love acorns. Excess greens from your garden, et cetera. They'll provide back to you. And if you bring in male and female selectively when you want to and place them together, they're self-perpetuating. So all you got to do if you want more chickens is have four hens and a rooster. And you'll be having to do things to prevent yourself from having more chickens than you really want. They can be a source of income as well. They certainly increase the overall value of what you have if they're utilized properly as part of a permaculture system. They reduce your grocery bill. You know, have eggs for breakfast every day. I don't care what the freaking environmental whack jobs and the nutritional idiots that go to college for four years to learn how to make a freaking, you know, low cholesterol omelet, say. Eggs are good for you. Especially eggs without hormones and without crap and without antibiotics and without genetically modified feed going into your chickens. Chicken's good for you. Okay? Goat's milk is good for you. And all of these things can be provided to you from livestock. Duck eggs are wonderful. Most Americans have never tasted a duck egg. It's a sin. A duck egg is so rich, so luscious, so nutritious. And, you know, they don't need that much. In fact, they do a lot of work for you. It's like having employees that work for chicken feed, literally. Okay, so that's another investment to consider is livestock and a long-term way to provide for your livestock with as little input as possible. In other words, have productive pets. Water. It's a huge investment. It's one of the main things you need. Other than, If you have food and water and shelter, you're pretty good. So if you have a roll piece of property with a house on it, with alternative energy and the ability to produce a large uh, portion of your own food, the only thing you're left without having available to you is water. Well, if you put a good well in, you tie that into your solar system, it'll work whether the grid's up or not and whether you pay the electric bill or not. If you put in a little extra money and put in, uh, like, a pond, and a swale system, so you're both harvesting surface water and you're pushing water into your agricultural system so you don't have to go and do it manually, even if you have alternative ways to do it. That's what's beautiful about swales. Not only does a swale provide water for your crops, but unlike a pond or a well, you don't have to go out there, you don't have to run even a drip irrigation system. It's completely passive watering. Massive amounts of mulch, all the things you do to harvest water, both for direct consumption, using it for bathing, and for providing for the crops and the food, fruit and the nuts and everything else, and the livestock on your property, water is a huge investment. Putting in a nice little half-acre pond is a good investment if you have somebody do it right. Spend the money and get it done properly. It's a massive investment. If you have a creek, you buy a property with a with a creek that runs all the time. It's a it's possibly a source of energy and electricity with micro hydro uh, electrical production. It's definitely a source of water pressure, uh, there's there's a way to rig up a pump. It's like called a hydrostatic pump, I think. It's something like that, where basically you use the water pressure in the creek to pump water uphill. For, it's basically free energy. No electricity required. It's definitely a source that if you're able to dam it up, you don't have a water right issue, you can create a a pond for yourself. Anything that allows you access to water and the ability to retain water, burying a couple cisterns in the ground or even having above-ground tanks and doing water harvesting off your roofs and off the land, absolutely positively wonderful long-term investments. If you do all the things I just said, you are in a completely self-sufficient situation. You still choose to earn money and spend money outside of your own system, but you'll do it at your choosing as you decide and at your discretion, if that makes sense. If the shit hits the fan, you can survive. If the shit doesn't hit the fan, you can live a better life. Hopefully, this is starting to open your eyes to other investment opportunities. And then you take these things like permaculture and water harvesting and combine them with a system that's like aquaculture on your property. Investing in building an aquaculture-based greenhouse that has tanks that produce you fish, systems that produce you food, And in the end, the fish eat almost 100% of what's provided to them by the plants and the algae that grow in their tanks. And you have to do very little feeding. And every year you're harvesting tilapia as a source of protein. Now you have even more self-sufficiency. And, you know, you can do things other than fish. You can do shrimp. Freshwater shrimp are a great aquaculture uh, thing you can do as well. And there's there's tons of things that you can do that are self-perpetuating. Where do you get tilapia from? You get yourself two tilapia. Two different species, so you breed hybrid tilapia, so you don't have any reproduction in your tank. You heat them in a large fish tank in your house, you harvest their fry, and you put them out in your aquaculture tank. Completely, totally, 100% self-sufficient, and relatively easy to put together enough solar, even in a DIY situation, do-it-yourself situation, to run your aquaculture system completely on solar. Absolutely, relatively easy to do. Depending on the size of the situation doesn't require that much more of an investment. And I think that the big thing through all of this... Your big investment is in your own knowledge. I'm not talking about college degrees. I'm not going to put colleges down today. I can in a variety of ways, and I can put them up in a variety of ways either. But I'm talking about learning how to do all these things I'm talking about. Going out and going to permaculture workshops, spending $1,000 on it, educating yourself on how to do these things the right way, how to survey a piece of land, how to know how to get the most out of that piece of land, making that skill available to other people by consulting with them. You know, if I, if I can find a good permaculture consultant in Arkansas, I'll pay them 500 bucks to come out and look at my land for a day and give me some suggestions on how to do it. I'll pay them quick because they'll tell me what they already know instead of me spending a year to figure it out. That's worth $500. So knowledge is an investment for what you can do with it for yourself and for how you can use it to help other people as a source of income and or barter because it doesn't have to be for cash. And then the last step in this entire system... It's income reduction. Once you have a system like that completely in place, you don't need that much money. By reducing your income voluntarily, or if you continue to earn your income by donating a massive portion of your income into tax-deductible charities, you reduce your taxes, and you live a better life, and you have less stress because you're not as dependent on that income, which means you only do things for income that you would do anyway, that you want to do. Now, to me, that's, a, that's an investment portfolio, and it leaves a hell of an inheritance behind. Because now, instead of leaving your children a trust fund, you leave them a system of production behind that costs very little to maintain and provides oh-so-much back. Stocks, bonds, mutual funds, even gold and silver will not do that. So where do you get the money to do all this? Well, you know, I found it interesting that today. I was watching Home and Garden TV, I think actually yesterday, and... Um, they keep talking about this thing. I really don't understand it completely yet, but I get the gist of it. It's called the 250K challenge. How awesome of a home can you get, build, set up, you know, improve, whatever, for $250,000? Now, most Americans don't have $250,000 to buy a house, so they're going to mortgage it. Let's say they're not idiots and so they don't do, you know, adjustable rate arms and all this other crap. They've learned their lesson. They get a good, solid mortgage for 30 years, like, you know, most advisors would tell you is reasonable to do. Uh, They'll pay about 1% of the mortgage in a mortgage payment. That's going to be $2,500 a month. Over 30 years, check my math if you don't believe it, it's $900,000. $900,000. Now they're going to get some of that good old tax avoidance in there because they're going to reduce their income tax because of interest in insurance or interest in um, uh, property taxes and things like that because that $2,500 dollars does include those things. But let's cut it in half. $450,000. And let's say we can pull that off in 15 years instead of 30 because it's half the money. If you put all of the effort that you do to generating your income into building a system like I just described. you think you can pull it off for $450,000? I think you can pull it off for a lot less than $450,000. So I'm not telling you this is exactly what to do, or I'm not even going to tell you exactly how you should do it. All I'm saying to yourself is, for a minute today, pull yourself back from your conventional view of investing. Think about what I've said before about do you own a home or do you own a homestead? Is your home a consumer that consumes your income and your resources, or is it a producer that provides a form of income and resources back to you? Is it a hybrid that's not quite made the transition yet? Is it at least on its way? Is the best place for all of your retirement and all your savings in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, even cash, gold, and silver, or is it in hard Tangible real assets that provide for you the things that you're doing and in you're investing today are they leading you to a place where you'll leave a true legacy behind for your children? Are they taking you to a point of self-sufficiency? Even if your investments that you have planned with your advisor pay off at the rate of return that he's suggesting, if you stay in the type of home that you're in today, even if you sell it and buy that little condo after you've used up most of the good part of your life and you're 75 years old, if you live that long, will you be truly independent at that point or will you be hoping that Social Security is still around? If you take some piece of that money, and you work really hard to build a low-taxed, self-sufficient place to live that provides you food, water, you grow your own herbs, you provide some level of your own medicine, you live healthy, you remove stress from your life, what would you have if you're 35 by the time you were 50? How much more valuable would it be than a declining 401k balance or even an appreciating 401k balance that you wouldn't be able to get your hands on for another 10 years? If you did die at 50 from some catastrophic event, what would be better to leave behind to your children or your grandchildren or whomever you choose? I can't answer those questions for you. Because some people would rather have the big investment portfolio. I know what my answer is, though. And that's because I'm focused on improving my life, not my bank balance. Improving my self sufficiency, not my ego. You have to make the decision for yourself. This has been Jack Spirica with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream. You can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent